The reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Great. Well, we are continuing this morning our um, current series in the seven churches of Revelation as we continue to look at what does Jesus want for his church. And this morning we come to look at the church at a place called Pergamum. Um, Why don't I lead us in a prayer as uh, we come to God's word. Lord, a few moments ago we were singing, cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. And Lord, we would make that our prayer this morning. Uh, Let the truth of your word prevail over our natural unbelief. Father, we give thanks that you are a God of truth. We give thanks that uh, Jesus said that your word is truth. And uh, so, Father, pray that your spirit would be active now, helping us to hear and to engage and to understand and to apply what you have for each of us to our lives. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, immediately after I graduated, I uh, worked for the menswear department um, of a big department store in Edinburgh, uh, up in Scotland. Uh, For those of you who know Edinburgh a little bit, it used to be called Jenner's, and uh, you can see a picture of it there uh, on the screen if you're interested. And uh, while I was working there, uh, one of the interesting things was that I got to know some of the security staff. And one of the most surprising things that I learned from the security staff was that they used to have to keep as much an eye on the rest of the staff in Jenner's uh, as they did on the customers. Uh, I'd always assumed that the main um, threat to any department store was potential uh, shoplifters, and that the staff, well, they could basically be trusted. Uh, And so you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that the staff were actually under under as much surveillance uh, as the customers were. It turns out that that department store was as concerned about internal risk, the risk from within, as it was about external risk, the risk from without. And all of that, I think, very helpfully uh, maps out uh, onto what we're looking at 
this morning and the church at Pergamum. Uh, the problem with the church in Pergamum was that it was super vigilant about external risk, the threat of persecution, but yet it had started to take its eye off the ball when it came to internal risk and the threat of false teaching. And all that, I think, is helpful for us as a church this morning here at Eden in this uh, series so far. We've been looking at what does Jesus want for his church, and so far we've seen that Jesus wants his church to be loving. Uh, He wants his people to be growing in love for him and also in love for each other. Um, We've also seen that Jesus wants his church to persevere. Uh, He wants us to keep going with him, uh, even when we experience tough times. And now this morning, we see that Jesus also wants his church to be a place of truth. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, Paul describes the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. He says, if I am delayed, uh, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so Jesus wants us here at Eden uh, to be a church that holds fast to his truth. Uh, We live in a world, of course, where the whole notion of truth uh, is increasingly uh, unclear. And uh, people are increasingly sceptical of truth claims. But Jesus wants his church to be a place uh, that contends for the truth about him and his word. Um, Will we do that? Well, you can see from the... uh, map that we've been using there on the screen, that uh, Pergamum was the uh, next place that a messenger would have uh, visited as they went around the seven churches, and Pergamum there is right at the top, um, number three. Uh, you can also see there what uh, Pergamum looks like these days, still a pretty impressive uh, archaeological site, uh, as you can actually see there, uh, which is uh, dominated uh, by a large hill. And I would like us to look at, at this church, a Pergamum, this morning under three headings, which are summarised the message that I believe that Jesus has for us this morning. And so then, uh, number one, we see past faithfulness. So the church at Pergamum was known for past faithfulness. And uh, we can see this in verse 13, where Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And so Jesus really here begins with words of comfort. He says, I know where you live. Now, we need to say, of course, that this is uh, not how we might respond when somebody owes us... uh, Money, and we say, I know where you live. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, Jesus here wants to reassure these Christians. And so he says, I know where you live. I know your context. I know how hard it is to be a Christian where you are. And then the reason it is hard to be a Christian in Pergamum, Jesus says, is because this is where Satan also lives. He says it's where he has his throne. Jesus says this is where Satan um, seems to rule. Um, last year, we had the experience of looking for property uh, here in Cambridge. And uh, just imagine that the estate agent uh, said to me, uh, this neighbourhood is where the devil lives. 
uh, that wouldn't have been particularly appealing, would it? <laughs> but that is effectively what the Lord Jesus says to the Christians here in Pergamum. There's a sort of grim reality here about Jesus' words. When Jesus looks at a place, he sees what it is like spiritually, and Jesus says that Pergamum was somewhere dark and evil, where the devil seemed to rule. Um, what does Jesus mean here? Well, it is possible that he's referring to the huge temple to the Greek god Zeus, uh, which sat on top of that big hill that dominated Pergamum. Um, It's also possible that Jesus uh, could have been referring to the cult of Asclepius that was uh, centred in in Pergamum. So Asclepius was the god of healing. Uh, Many of you have probably seen his uh, insignia on uh, on medical products without uh, realising what it uh, actually was, that there is the rod of uh, Asclepius that you can see there on the uh, screen. Uh, Asclepius' emblem was a snake. And of course, throughout God's word, the uh, snake is uh, often used as a um, symbol for the evil one uh, throughout the Bible. But it's probably most likely, I think, that Jesus here is referring to the cult of emperor worship. Uh, Pergamum was a a centre of Roman rule, and so worship of the emperor uh, would have been expected there. Just as we saw last week, that the devil was using the Jews to uh, slander the Christians in Smyrna. Uh, So here we see that that the devil was probably using the Roman authorities to persecute Christians. As we saw last week, the devil is a defeated enemy. He has been defeated by Jesus on the cross, which is wonderful news. But yet he still wars against Christians to get them to give up on their devotion to Christ. I think it's uh, worth saying as well. At this point, that uh, you may be here and you are investigating Christianity at the moment. You actually have uh, lots of questions about the devil, if you are honest. The whole concept, it sounds a little bit weird, a little bit medieval, a little bit strange, uh, maybe. Well, if so, we have our Ask Anything uh, afterwards. (laughs) And I know that uh, Mike and his team uh, would love to engage with you uh, about any questions that you may have. But here I think Jesus is saying that Satan can be active anywhere in the world. Uh, Jesus even calls him the prison, the uh, prince of this present world. Uh, that's John chapter 14 and verse 30. But maybe there are some places where the devil's presence is uh, especially felt. And Pergamum was a place like that where Satan appeared to rule uh, in our own world. Uh, we maybe think of a tribe where a, an influential witch doctor... Uh, maybe holds sway perhaps, or a government or uh, ideology that is vehemently uh, anti-Christian in what it puts forward. So maybe a neighbourhood where drug lords reign, I think uh, all of uh, those things could possibly qualify. But yet the Christians in Pergamum had remained faithful to Jesus. Jesus says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. And then he names somebody called Antipas, who he calls my faithful witness, uh, who had been actually uh, killed in Pergamum uh, for being a Christian. Uh, Literally, uh, the words here say, yet you hold fast to my name. Uh, Later on in verse 14 and 15, we see that Jesus uses the same word to describe those actually who were holding fast to false teaching. But yet here, Jesus commends the church for holding fast to him. 
It's a glorious truth that we've been looking at recently in uh, Sunday evenings here, that uh, Jesus holds fast to us. But here, of course, we see the opposite side of the equation, that we also need to hold fast to him, uh, which is what Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for here. How can we apply uh, these things to ourselves? Well, first of all, I do think that there's an encouragement here for anyone who's maybe been a victim of evil and yet has remained true to Jesus' name. Now, Jesus says that there are places of real evil and darkness in our world. Um, some of you here may have even been persecuted uh, because you are a Christian. And if that's you, then Jesus would want to say, well done, well done, you have not renounced your faith in me. And I hope that's a real encouragement to you this morning. Then I think there's also great encouragement for us here from the fact that Jesus knows our context. Jesus knows where you live. Now, Jesus knows the spiritual difficulties of, being, of living in Cambridge right now. Um, Jesus knows the spiritual challenges of being a Christian in your workplace, your classroom, uh, your lab, uh, your school, or even your home. Jesus knows. Uh, Jesus knows where you are, and there's great encouragement in that. I know how hard it is to be a Christian where you are. Hey, you know that awkward silence that maybe comes up with your work colleagues when uh, certain topics are raised. Uh, well, Jesus knows what that is like. I remember once uh, reading about the British general, Earl Haig, during World War I. And apparently during the whole course of the war, he never once uh, visited the um, front line He never once visited a field hospital or experienced what it was like to be in the trenches. Uh, He spent his whole time in a French country house uh, well behind the lines and went uh, riding every afternoon with his entourage uh, in his dress uniform. Well, that is not like Jesus. Rather, Jesus knows what it is like to be in the trenches when we feel under pressure Jesus sympathises with us. Jesus knows the cultural moment that we are in. He knows where we live. And so that we see that the church at Pergamum is commended for its past faithfulness, which is a great strength. However, we also need to move on because we see present challenges. And so we've seen that the church at Pergamum looked like it was doing well, outwardly. It looked really good. Uh, We would have looked at it and we would have probably given thanks for its great perseverance and its faithfulness to Jesus. But yet inwardly, Jesus says that there is a problem. And you can see that in verse 14, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And so Jesus says that the basic problem here is a tolerance of false teaching. And this false teaching was advocating for compromise with the world. The uh, church had kept faithful in the face of uh, external threats, uh, persecution coming in from the outside. They had remained true to Jesus' name. But now they were in danger of taking their eye off the ball when it came to the internal threats and false teaching from within. What was the... uh, uh, false teaching in question. 
Well, Jesus identifies it here as the teaching of Balaam in verse 14, and then he goes on to talk about the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Uh, The story of Balaam, of course, can be found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, uh, when God's people were on their way out of Egypt uh, at the time of the Exodus. And there was a king called Balak, who was king of a place called Moab. And he hires a false prophet called Balaam to curse God's people. However, God frustrates Balak's plans, so that every time poor old Balaam opens his uh, mouth uh, to pronounce a, a, a curse, he ends up actually blessing God's people instead. Uh, This happens a number of times until Balak eventually decides to come up with plan B. And plan B was for the women of Moab to entice the Israelite men into sleeping with them and to uh, worship their gods. Uh, They know that if they do this, then God's judgment will fall on them. And this is exactly what happens. The men of Israel are enticed. God's judgment falls. And we read that 24,000 of them die in a plague before God relents. Later on, however, in uh, Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, we discover that it was actually Balaam's plan for the men of Israel to be seduced. where the full frontal attack against God's people had failed, he tried something more subtle. Uh, Why not lure God's people? Why not entice them into compromise with the world and destroy them that way instead? Now, that's obviously a lot of uh, Old Testament background, but hopefully you can begin to see the parallel with the church in Pergamum. Uh, They had withstood the full frontal attack, of persecution and had remained faithful to Christ. But yet now they are in danger of being seduced from within. And so they need to be warned and watch out. Uh, We know very, very little about the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Um, It's really not clear whether they're just the New Testament equivalent of the teaching of Balaam or whether there were actually two groups of false teachers in Pergamum. But what is clear in the original is that they were both teaching the same thing. Uh, The two temptations in Pergamum were the same ones that Balaam had used to try and hoodwink Israel at the time of the Exodus, the worship of idols and the temptation to sexual immorality. And both of these were big temptations in Pergamum, as they have been for God's people, actually, in every age In order to try and enter into just how big these temptations were, we need to to try and understand a little bit about what life was actually like for the Christians in Pergamum. As we saw last week, if you were here, commerce in uh, Asia Minor revolved around trade guilds. Uh, Trade guilds involved feasts that were dedicated to pagan gods, and so the pressure for Christians to attend and go along with it was huge. Even if you wanted to go to your cousin's wedding... Uh, it probably involved participation in a feast that would have been dedicated to a pagan idol. Uh, And so there was great pressure on the Christians to compromise. And these false teachers, well, they were saying that this was really no big deal. Uh, It was no big deal at all. Christians shouldn't be getting hung up anymore on uh, these kinds of things. Uh, You need to relax a bit. It's fine. It's a great way to get ahead. Uh, Okay, you're participating in the worship of a pagan god, but I'm sure that Jesus would understand. You need to do it to do business and actually get along around here. 
Uh, they were probably saying exactly the same kinds of things with regards to sexual immorality. Uh, why not just blend in? Uh, we all know that God's ideal, of course, is sex in the context of uh, marriage, but uh, not everyone can live up to that. God has made us all in different ways. Uh, He wouldn't want any of us to be unfulfilled, so why not just blend in and sleep with whoever you want? Uh, Everyone else is doing it, so why don't you? And of course, it was incredibly persuasive. But what we see here, that Jesus does actually care. And Jesus says that it is actually a big deal. It's a big deal because it is denying the truth about him. He is Lord to the exclusion of all other gods. And and it is denying the truth of Jesus' word. Jesus has told us clearly how to live. And he expects us to live lives of obedience to him. Independence on him. And so really the question that each of us need to consider and think through this morning is, well, what are the equivalent issues for us where uh, we may be tempted to compromise and to blend in with our own culture to try and fit in with the world around us. If you're a Christian from elsewhere in the world, of course, it is possible that you already know all about this. Uh, You've faced pressure from your family, maybe, to worship other gods uh, after you became a Christian and you needed to stand firm. For those of us in the West, I wonder, um, where, do, where do we hear those little whispers in our ears, maybe, telling us that something's not actually a big deal? Um, Jesus thinks it's fine, and that we just need to loosen up and go along with everybody else. Maybe we need to pray that God might reveal to us where we're in the danger of compromising at the moment. And so I ask each of you, as I ask myself this morning, uh, what are the issues for you? Uh, What are the issues for me? Maybe think about academia. Are there compromises that we make to try and get ahead? Do we worship academic success so much that we're willing to keep quiet, maybe, or not even be uh, known as a Christian? When it comes to something like sexual sin or pornography, do we just accept that as uh, something normal that uh, everyone's doing and we think that Jesus won't mind? Uh, Or do we actually heed um, Jesus' call for purity and actually war against it? What are the dangers for us? When it comes to parenting, maybe, what are our desires for our children? Are our ambitions for our children uniquely Christian? Or are our ambitions for our children pretty much the same as our our neighbours next door? Um, That our children might grow up to get married and be wealthy and financially secure. Um, One author uh, writing about the Church of Pergamon says these words, uh, Juan Sanchez, he says the point is that every day we are tempted in a thousand little ways to just cave in and go along with it. Whether you're a pastor or a professor, a school teacher or a politician, a supervisor or an employee, a public figure or a private person, the pressure is increasing, both from our culture and the government, to compromise. Pause long enough to reflect and you'll soon know what the issues are for you. And so we need to remember that Jesus calls us to be different. 
Jesus calls us to hold fast to him and not renounce our faith in him. Um, like we saw a few moments ago um, in point one. However, I don't want to just to think this morning about uh, areas where we might be compromising. I would also like to share something that can, hope in, that can hopefully uh, encourage us practically uh, to be different and uh, live differently for Jesus. And uh, this uh, is from a journalist called Ben Sixsmith. Um, several years ago, I read an article that he wrote on the whole subject of celebrity pastors. And it was really interesting, uh, not, because it was, not least because it was completely written from the point of view of someone who isn't a Christian. And you can see the uh, last paragraph that he wrote there on the screen. He said, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. It's a very interesting paragraph indeed. Now, of course, I'm not quite sure what Ben Sixsmith's uh, motivation was. But here is someone who isn't a Christian who is saying that it appears to him as if most Christians want to be more like him, want to be more like the world than trying to reach the world and be different. He says, if they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. So here is one person at least who isn't a Christian, who actually wants Christians to stand out and be different. And I hope this encourages you to actually be different for the sake of Jesus Christ and his name. Very often, you see, I think we assume that the world wants us to blend in. But actually, there are some people out there who are actually longing for Christians to not be like them. And who can offer them real hope and real life as a result. Uh, if we ask, uh, what does Jesus want for his church? Then at least part of the answer to that we've seen has to be truth. Jesus wants us to hold fast to the truth about him and his teaching. And so how are we doing? Are there areas maybe where I am in danger of compromise? And so we also see then the present challenges that the church at Pergamum faced. But then what are we to actually do about this? How can we be people of truth? And all this moves us on to our last point, which I've called future options. And this brings us to verse 16 and 17, where Jesus really lays out before the church two paths. They can either repent and return to him, or he says that he will come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. So then, uh, how can we remain loyal to King Jesus? Well, there's uh, three truths here about um, Jesus that I would like us to look at as we close. And uh, first of all, then, we see Jesus' word. Now, so look with me at what Jesus says in verse 16. So Jesus says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So we can see there that uh, Jesus calls on the church to repent. He says, repent, therefore. Uh, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just address the false teachers here, of course, but he actually addresses the whole church, and he calls on the whole church to repent. 
he calls on the church to repent, basically of uh, tolerating the false teaching in their midst. Uh, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, repentance simply means a change of mind or a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior uh, or a change of direction. So here, Jesus is really calling on the church to exercise church discipline. Uh, he is saying that uh, this false teaching needs to be addressed and it needs to be dealt with by the church as a whole. And if the church fails, then Jesus says that he will come and deal with it himself. He says, otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus has already introduced himself as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword back in verse 12. And now he says that he will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, We know from elsewhere in the Bible uh, that Jesus is talking here about the power of his word. So as it uh, says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, uh, the verse that was on the screen uh, earlier on, uh, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Um, In context here, uh, all this may well mean that Jesus might raise up other teachers to come and address the false teaching that exists in Pergamum. It may also mean that uh, eventually Jesus will come against them himself in judgment uh, later on. And the standard of his judgment uh, will be his word. For us this morning, I think this is a reminder of the power of God's word. Very often the Bible, very often uh, biblical preaching uh, appears weak. But yet here Jesus reminds us of the great power of his word. It is like a sword that cuts us open. It exposes our hearts and then heals us by pointing us to Jesus Christ, our rescuer and the rightful Lord of our life. I like how uh, John Stott um, um, summarizes this in his book on the seven judges. Um, Stott writes, God's way to overcome error is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ which is God's power for the salvation of all those who believe. Falsehood will not be suppressed by the gruesome methods of the Inquisition or the burning of heretics at the stake or by restrictive legislation. Ideas will not be overcome by force, only truth can defeat error. The false ideologies of the world can be overthrown only by the superior ideology of Christ. We have no other weapon than this sword. We must use it fearlessly. And so what John Stott's really saying there is that false teaching in the church can only be dealt with by the power of God's word. Maybe one application of this for us this morning is that we need to be praying for those churches that are fighting false teaching at the moment. That the power of God's word might prevail over falsehood and unbelief. Then uh, number two, we also see Jesus' authority. So again, this is uh, back to the idea of the uh, double-edged sword. Uh, In context here, of course, the uh, image of the sword is meant to remind us of Jesus' authority. Uh, For many of the Christians in Pergamum, of course, it looked like the Romans were the ones who were holding the sword. But Jesus is saying, no, I hold the sword. Don't forget where real power is. And real authority lies. Uh, One of the reasons that we often compromise is that we easily forget 
I think, who holds the sword. Uh, if we're honest, sometimes we think that social media or the latest movies or even the unofficial court of public opinion, that they are the ones who are holding the sword. And we fear them, just like the Christians in Pergamum used to fear the Romans. But Jesus says, remember that I am the one who holds the sword. I am the one who has authority. We will hold fast to Jesus and his truth much more easily if we remember that Jesus is the one who is holding the sword. And then uh, number um, three, we also see Jesus' reward, the wonderful reward that Jesus promises to all who repent and who seek him. So verse uh, 17 And Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, I know that most of these things sound a little bit weird and like they are belonging to something like Lord of the Rings. Uh, a uh, white stone and a uh, new name, for instance. Uh, but actually, they are wonderfully encouraging to us, and they are all to do with Jesus' future promises to us. Um, we, ha- we don't actually know for sure what each of them really means, but uh, manna was God's provision of food for his uh, people at the time of the Exodus in the Old Testament. Um, in the New Testament, we are told explicitly in John chapter 6 that it uh, pointed forwards to Jesus as the one who was the bread of life. And so this probably means that uh, Jesus is the one who feeds us. Jesus is the one who uh, nourishes us spiritually such that we will never ever be hungry again, not just now, but actually throughout eternity uh, as well. If you like, we'll have some of that uh, hidden manna to eat. And then Jesus also talks here about a white stone. Uh, there's uh, lots and lots of uh, possible meanings of a white stone in the ancient world. Uh, white stones were used for many things. Um, but one of them was as tickets to kind of gain entrance to banquets or to big events. And uh, I think that's probably what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus will give us a white stone. Uh, Jesus is saying that uh, he gives us access to his heavenly banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not something that we earn, but rather something that Jesus gives us as a gift. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has taken everything that separates us from God, and when we believe in him, it's as if Jesus hands us a white stone, a guaranteed entry ticket uh, into the kingdom of uh, heaven when he comes again. And then lastly, a new name. I think the idea here is of intimacy with Jesus. The uh, invitation comes personally to each one of us individually. Uh, Jesus will give us a new name on on that that day that only we will know. It speaks of of, uh, uh, intimacy in terms of our relationship with him. Uh, I really love the book by Emma Scrivener called A New Name. This is a really great book that, uh, where she details some of the st- struggles uh, which she's had with food and with eating uh, as a Christian. And one of the key passages in it is uh, the one at the end um, where she says this. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that Jesus will give us a new name on the last day. It is a name that is written on a white stone and it is for our eyes only. It is who we really are, and hearing it will be like returning to our native shore after many years of exile. 
It is like coming home to rest and wholeness and peace. I really love uh, what she um, says about it when she says that hearing our new name will be like returning to our native shore after years of uh, exile. In Christ, uh, in Jesus, uh, we will finally be home. And so hopefully you can see what the Lord Jesus is um, saying to us this morning through all this. Uh, Jesus is really saying it is easier to avoid compromise when you have a better hope. And just look at the hope that I am promising you. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. You are mine and I love you. Uh, why would you not uh, want to hold fast to me? Um, maybe for some of us here, uh, over this coming week, we could do worse than uh, meditate on these three things. Uh, the hidden manna. Uh, Jesus is the bread of life who uh, satisfies not just now, but in eternity as well. The white stone through his death for us, we have a table reservation at Jesus' great banquet when he comes again. And a new name. We will be loved and known by Jesus. And so why would we ever look anywhere else other than holding fast to him? And then this morning, for those of us who maybe aren't Christians yet, or maybe we're someone who would say that we are a Christian, but yet we are compromising significantly with the world at the moment. Well, Jesus, I think, would lovingly call us back to him. He offers you that white stone with a new name, a personalized invitation to come to him, to receive his power and his love and his life, and to enjoy fellowship with him forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. Lord, we want to humbly confess the tendency that we all have to focus on those areas where we think we are doing well and yet be blind maybe to those areas where we are weak. And so, Lord, we do pray that uh, you would help us to learn from this church at Pergamum all of those years ago. Help us not to be blind to the threats of false teaching uh, or compromise with the world. Lord, we give you thanks that you do offer us a much better hope. Help us to remain faithful to you. And we ask all of these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.